Coming live from Florida, USA is our guest this morning. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Vic Ferrari, retired NYPD detective and author. Welcome to the show, Vic. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And so we'll be talking about a lot of stuff, you know. But first to understand from uh, you, uh, Vic, is what's, what it's like to work for the New York City Police Department. What is it like? We have the Indian police. We know about Indian police. The several state police are very, very efficient and we look up to a lot that is happening, especially you know in movies. But we know most of the things about about the police departments from the movies, especially the New York Police Department and all. So knowing from you straight away from a detective, an ex-detective, that will be great and much more real. Sure. So I, I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. The New York City Police Department is probably the largest one police department in the country. At any given time, there's between 35 and 40,000 members. Um, New York City has 9 million people and five boroughs. In those five boroughs, there's 77 separate police stations. The police stations have anywhere between 100 cops in it or policemen to 500, depending on the neighborhood. And that's not including specialized units. Um, I was hired when I was 20 years old. I had a wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. I worked in plain clothes, uh, 15 out of my 20 years. I worked in anti-crime units where um, just drove around in plain clothes in an unmarked car and, and did robberies in progress, burglaries, pickpockets. Uh, I worked in narcotics division for a while. And my last 10 years, I worked in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with stolen vehicles. Um, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, chop shops where cars are taken apart and sold for parts, um, did a lot of cases with the organized crime and the mafia. Right. That, that's a lot of things. Means how do you plan your day as a, as a cop down there? Means, uh, and then you got the cases also to follow in the courts. How do you people work it out? How do you use technology to make it uh, most efficient for you people how does it work down there okay so you do six months in the police academy when you come out of the police academy you get assigned to a police station and they put you in what's called field training so you're under the supervision of a sergeant there's usually between 10 and 25 other new recruits or rookies they usually put you on foot posts in busy neighborhoods and basically you're told to figure it out and people come up to you, they have questions. And if, if something gets overwhelming, you get on the radio and you call for the supervisor and he helps you sort things out. That goes on for about six months. After your field training, they put you in a police station where usually as a rookie, you get like all the shitty assignments. So when people die in their homes, you have to go there and stay and stay with the deceased while the detectives determine if it's a natural death or an unnatural death. Um, you get all the petty calls like shoplifters. You get all the crappy assignments. Eventually, if it, you know if you're lucky, you get into a radio call with a veteran and a veteran police officer. You go around with him and, and you learn the ropes. You learn how to talk to people. You learn the different paperwork. 
And then after a while, you're on your own in a police car with, with, with another younger cop. Um, if you get a good, if you get good evaluations, you make good arrests, you stay out of trouble, you can put in for specialized units. And that's what I did. I mean, after about five years, I was already in plain clothes. And then I went into the detective bureau where I was investigating organized crime. Okay. Okay. And where do that part, you know, in the movies, they say in helicopters, the police is moving and then swooping down on different dens of the criminals and the police people are, you know, it, it, it looks so alluring. Anybody would be tempted about to have a life like that. So when does that happen? That part happen in a policeman's life in New York uh, City Police Department? Well, you know what it is? It, it's I, I equate a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. It's like going to the circus and having a front row seat. So you've got lion tamers you got people eating fire you got guys to clean up after the elephants that go by there's just so much going on that you've got to figure out what do i want to do with my career do i want to study for the sergeant's exam and become a sergeant and then you know manage people and then study again and become a lieutenant and study again and i never wanted to manage people i have a hard enough time managing myself I always wanted to be a detective and do investigative work. So very early on, I knew the path that I wanted. I wanted to become a detective. Okay. Okay. And do you people also use, there is something called the third degree, when you can use the stick and actually get out information of the guys arrested? This is a, this is a sort of a, uh, known thing, known secret. A lot of people in different places in the world utilize it. But you know, US, it's it's a very democratic sort of a uh, country. And but but police is also under a lot of pressure. Uh, pressure and a lot of crime happen where criminals are very hardened or or are very very shrewd. So in those cases, how do you or or maybe a detective like you who can bring out enough information that can you know, make them uh, accept the crime that they have done. How does it work in terms of, you know, just to understand how you people get about getting to the, you know, the depth of the crime, what exactly, and catch the criminals? It's an art, and it takes time to learn how to speak to people and how to get people to talk to you. Um, in the United States, you, if you're going to question, if you have somebody in custody, which I mean, they're in the precinct, they're not free to go. You have to read them their, their rights. And one of the things you advise them is, listen, you don't have to talk to me. If you want a lawyer, we will provide a lawyer for you free of charge. And most of the time, a lot of times they'll say, yes, I want a lawyer. And then it's time out. I can't talk to this person anymore. Um, Sometimes, believe it or not, they will talk to you. Sometimes they won't. It's it's um it's a process of having to to learn how to become a good interrogator. You got to know when to get up in someone's face. You got to know sometimes when to back off. I was just on another podcast the other day, and I was explaining a case about this young man had killed his mother in her apartment, and the, we weren't sure if he did it or not. And the detectives were speaking to him. And although he was talking, he was not forthcoming. And at some point during the interrogation, he said, you know, I'm tired. I really want to go home. And the detectives were smart because had they kept pushing him, he might have said, you know what? 
I think I want a lawyer. And then that's boom. You can't speak to him anymore. That's it. And a lawyer is not going to let him talk to you. So the detective said, okay, fine. You can go home. And later on the next morning, they went back to his house and they started talking to him again. And eventually they were able to get out of him that yes, he had, he had stabbed his mother to death, but, um, There's a lot of rules in the United States as far as what you can and cannot do. Different countries have different policies. Um, You're not allowed to put your hands on somebody. You're not allowed to use force to get a confession out of somebody. You're not allowed to deprive someone of sleep or food or medical attention. Um, You can get in a lot of trouble for not only will the evidence not be able to be used, the police officer or the detective can be in a lot of trouble. You could wind up getting arrested if you treat a prisoner poorly. Okay, okay. One thing I wanted to understand, Vic, is that you read out the rights of the accused uh, while you are arresting them uh, or him or her. Yes. Uh, why, why is it so? If, if uh, One is you read that out, fine. But why do you tell them that you are free not to speak? If they speak, what will happen? Is it, is, can it be used as evidence? Yes. If, if after you read them their rights and they waive their rights and say, I'm good, I want to talk to you, then yes, everything they say is on the record. Okay. Okay. Because in India, if I, uh, if I understand our law correctly, uh, then any of those confessions in, in a police uh, custody or any other place, that does not hold uh, fully true. And that can be challenged by the lawyer in a court of law. Means some people uh, people say that it can also be, you know, the, the confessions can be derived by use of force. And that's why uh, all, all things are not taken the way a police charge sheet may want to present it. So that's the difference. That's what, what I wanted to understand. So, but that that's, I, if, if that is 100%, if I've understood what you are saying correct and 100, 100%, what I've understood of, about our law, that's a big difference. They're- oh, absolutely. And anybody with common sense that you arrest, and if they're, if they're with it and they hear, you're basically warning them, don't talk to me. I mean, in so many words, that's what you're saying. You're saying you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Do you understand? You have the right to attorney. Do you understand? You know, it's so you're basically warning them not to talk to you. Okay, okay, got it, got it. So there you can use it as an evidence here. Not everything that you say in front of the police can be used. They have to substantiate it through uh, uh, evidences and everything. So that's that's one part. Great, great to understand. What about the theft of cars, those, uh, you know, the, the vehicles and all that stuff? It, it is a big problem here in India. And every day uh, or the other, uh, I have seen that a lot of police cases uh, are filed in this and our police is quite busy in into these cases just to understand what happened to the vehicles it suddenly got uh, got got stolen from any of the parking lots how how is how deep is that problem down in the us well when i was active in in the 1990s new york city was averaging 150,000 stolen vehicles a year so it was basically if you drove around with a computer in the car and you were running license plates, you were going to you'd be in a car chase fairly okay. shortly. Um, we when I was a detective in the auto crime division, we try to get to the root of the problem. 
where are the cars going? We were going after the professionals. Now, did we, we did also sometimes arrest drug addicts or teenagers that would steal a car to joyride or a drug addict would steal a car to get around. But we went after the organized crime figures, the guys that owned the junkyards where the cars would go to be chopped up into pieces and then the parts would be sold for resale or the guys that would steal cars and change all the numbers on it, the vehicle identification numbers to resell it or people that were exporting stolen cars out of the country like the Dominican Republic or Soviet uh, Russia or the islands. We had a big problem with the Dominican Republic and and Jamaica and, and, and the islands out here. So we would go after those types of characters. Okay. And what are the types of cars which are uh, mainly that, that gets stolen? Is it is it the high-value car? What sort of... Because I have seen here uh, several times, if I understand, people uh, give a order sort of a car uh, for, for one particular type of car to some car thief. And then he goes about looking out for that sort of a car. And when he or the... Uh, or she or that ring finds it out, then they just, uh, maybe they exchange pictures before stealing the car. This is the type of car you want and this is the right. Yeah. And then they start. Now they have gone high tech. They have got those uh, equipments and those technology to, you know, you you, you uh, steal the car that way. How does it work that way well, there, down there? Different cars are stolen for different reasons, right? So. Okay. Easy, older cars that are easy to steal, that's what teenagers are going to steal because it's easy, right? And that's what a drug addict would steal to get around. An older car that doesn't stand out, you know what I mean? If you're a drug addict, a 100-pound drug addict, you're not going to go and steal an Acura. You're going to okay. stand out. They're going to steal an old Toyota or an old Honda because it, it kind of fits. Then you have cars that are stolen for the parts, and the reason they're stolen for parts is – is because if a car gets into an accident, there's parts for it. So, if you, so in the United States, if you get into a car accident, right, and let's say you've got a 2000 and 2018 Toyota Camry, and you get into an accident, the insurance company is going to pay for your car to be get fixed. If you go to Body Shop A, and the guy tells you it's going to take me three weeks to fix your car, and your deductible is fifteen hundred dollars. And then you go to Body Shop B that says, I'll have your car ready in 24 hours and don't worry about the deductible. Well, you're going to go to Body Shop B. Body Shop B pays kids to steal cars to take the parts off that he could just okay. slap them on. So the whole industry kind of feels it. So you've got the more popular cars, the Hondas, the Toyotas, you know, the most sold cars. The more cars are on the road, the more accidents they're in, there's more of a need for parts. That's why they're stolen. The high-end cars are stolen to be exported out of the country or people with you know, a lot of drug dealers. I mean, we used to see it in New York. The drug dealers didn't want to pay full price for a car. So instead of paying $50,000, $60,000 for a brand new you know, SUV or Acura or, or Cadillac, they pay a guy a couple of thousand dollars. They'd steal it. They'd change the VIN numbers. It would only cost them ten or 15000 Okay. Okay, got a fair idea about you have you know busted several car theft rings. Do you remember anything in particular that you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean th th we busted a lot of different car theft rings, and again, some some of the cases the cars were going out of the country, and other cases they were going into junkyards and body shops. They were taking the parts were being taken apart. 
and, you know, being being sold out the back door. You know what I mean? So what we would do is we would try to either through informants, like we'd arrest a guy and he would flip. He would now start working for us and give us inside information. Or sometimes if we knew a junkyard was taking in stolen vehicles, we would across the street put a hidden camera up and the camera would record the license plate numbers of the vehicles going into this place and cars are coming in and they're never coming out. Right. The only thing coming out is vans with parts. We'd watch the plates come in and we'd run the plates. And then a couple of days later, they would come back stolen. And then we would get a search warrant and hit the place. Right. Right. And what about celebrities? You you, you, seem, you must have met a lot of celebrities while in the police. How does it work down there? Now, I, I stay in New Delhi here in this part of this country. We have less number of celebrities. Most are in Mumbai down there that's where the bollywood is but there in your in your part uh, when when you were a police officer uh, how did it work did you come across celebrities in your in, in your career and when because we keep on reading about all those stories about somebody uh, uh, using drugs and somebody you know chasing uh, speeding up and all that stuff so any stories to share on that front Vic? yeah i met a lot of famous people so especially in manhattan um, sometimes like in New York, right. Even though I was a detective. So like on new year's Eve, when you see the ball drop in times square in New York of my 20 years with the New York city police department, 17 years, every new year's Eve. And even though I was in a, a detective, I had to go in uniform and go down there. And we did, we bumped into famous people all the time. I met, uh, actress Julianne Moore. She's really pretty. Uh, John Lovitz from Saturday night live. Um, actor Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, one day I got my, myself and another detective along with a couple of Israeli uh, guys from the Shin Bet. We guarded Benjamin Netanyahu for the day. Um, Baki okay. Moon, who was um, a big shot with the UN at the time. So I did get to meet a lot of famous people. Sometimes you just bumped into them in the street and other times you got assigned to guarding them for the day. Okay. Okay. And because in India, you know, you got to be a bit, you bit, uh, get uh, uh, a bit, you know, uh, impressed by celebrities here if they're especially from the Hollywood, uh, Bollywood. But how does it work? How does the police department uh, deal with celebrities if they are uh, arrest, accused of any particular crime, even if it's a small one? I, I never had to arrest a famous celebrity, but it does happen from time to time. I mean, um, I know in the 90s, a couple of times, like I think it was Johnny Depp tore up a hotel room and he got arrested for that. Um, that usually happens in, 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 in the Manhattan precincts, in the affluent areas. I would think the way it's handled is they're... They go through the system like everybody else, right? They get handcuffs put on them. They brought into the station house. But I'm sure they make sure that when they're in the cells, they're not going to put them in there with a murderer or, you know, someone that just beat up 14 people. They probably tend to keep an eye on them, if you know what I mean. I know a lot of times, like going down to court, a couple of times I saw, like, famous rappers, you know, like – I'm standing there one time, like, you know who, uh, you know, the rapper uh, Flavo Flav, the guy that used to wear the clock around around his neck. I remember one time I was waiting online to go into the courthouse and there was a guy in handcuffs and I go, 
yo, you look like Flavo Flav. And, and the two cops go, that is Flavo Flav. Like they had arrested him. So it was the, I just thought he looked like him and it was him. So, you know, it, it's sometimes, you know, you bump into these people. Right. Now, one major aspect, you know, uh, that is that we get the impression that uh, the police departments, they use a lot of technology. Uh, mm -hmm. is, is it true? May, I understand oh, yeah. it, it should be, but what is that technology and how advanced sort of a thing that you use uh, for, for your day-to-day -day operations? Yeah, I mean, it yeah it's, it's wild. I mean, I, I call them toys. I mean, things have evolved so much. So like when I worked in narcotics in the mid-90s, right? When an undercover went out to make a buy, he wore this like device that was taped to his body and there were wires so he could communicate with the field team. Okay. I remember when I retired, they had things like this. Like it looked like a key fob or something just, you just, see on your keychain. Let me, let me put you in the bigger window so that I exactly am able to show it to the viewers. Yeah. Yeah, just something like this. I mean, this is the remote to my fan in the house, but it looked like it looked like something you'd see on like a key fob on a keychain. And that thing was a digital recorder that was about this big, where in the old days, guys used to wear these big things strapped to their body that if someone said, hey, what is that? They'd find it. And then the guy was burned um, with auto theft. I remember I, I couldn't believe it was one of the wildest things I saw. We have these things nowadays. I see it down here in Florida. They're called plate readers. So on the back of a police car, you see these like they look like little stereos. They're mounted on the back of a police car. They're these little black boxes. And what they do is when you drive past them, it's a camera. And what these cameras do is they snap a photo of your license plate. After it takes a picture of your license plate, it runs the license plate in the police car. So it checks to see if the vehicle is stolen. It checks to see if the insurance in the car is current. It can run the driver of the car to see if he's a wanted person. It also timestamps where you were at what time of day. So say for argument's sake, a bank is robbed. They'll check the plate readers of the police cars to see what cars passed that were in that area at that time. And this way they can narrow it down. They'll start bringing people in for interviews. So, yeah, technology changed a lot. Also, I remember when we used to do wiretaps, like we would go up on people's phones to listen to phone conversations. In the old days, we had tape recorders. We had tape right. recorders mounted, right. mounted to like this device, and we'd sit there. Oh, the phone's ringing, and like you know, like you, like your parents playing with something. Like, okay, play record. When I left, um, we were doing wiretaps on a laptop. So yes, technology has evolved quite a bit. Right, right. One one thing uh, just wanted to understand because we talked about the good and maybe a bit of, you know, the bad from the criminal side. But looking at the police department itself, what is the extent of corruption down there? And how much does it impact, you know, law enforcement as such? Because if there is corruption, it will impact law enforcement. Of course. Um the New York City Police Department does a lot of things wrong, but I will say this. What they do get right is police corruption. So I always like to say from the minute you're hired, they tell you you're going to be fired. Like 
In the police academy, they make no bones about it. If you're stealing, if you're beating people up, if you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, we're going to fire you and you're going to go to jail. In the police academy, they would bring in cops who spent did jail time and come and talk to us and say, don't let this happen to you. Um, They would bring in prosecutors who were tasked with prosecuting police corruption to tell these horror stories about guys losing their careers and losing their lives. So they make no bones about it. If you're going to screw around, we're going to catch you and you'll go to jail and you're going to lose your job. Now, having said that, like I said, 35,000 men and women, you're going to get a few bad apples. Like it, when we have a police academy class of new recruits, a small class is 250 cops. A large class is 2,500. And despite all the psychological exams, the background checks, the interviews, you're still going to get a very small percentage that for whatever reason, they're taking that job because they're criminals and they're going to and they know with that with that gun and that badge, it's going to enable them. to to go to the next level to do something illegal. They do get caught eventually and they do throw the book at them. I mean, guys and girls I've seen go to jail for lengthy jail sentences for screwing around. Now where where I worked, I worked in organized crime. So we did a lot of wiretaps. We were listening to people's phone conversations and we used to say, if you do enough wiretaps, there's always going to be a cop that wanders onto that playing field, be it knowingly or unknowingly, and we've had it happen where cops have lost their jobs, have been arrested, that got involved with with criminal organizations, be it running license plates for them, protection, um, tipping them off to uh, uh, you know upcoming raids. So I did see it. I, I, I would say it's not a big problem. I would say it's probably less than 1% of the department. But when it does happen, it's so ugly and such on a grand scale that it, it just – you know, it, it, it's a shocking story. Okay, okay. You just talked about uh, phone conversations, tapping phone conversations. Now, how easy is it? Do you have to take special permissions to uh, tap any particular phone? Or is it that you guys have uh, enough power on your own that you can do that? Because it's anybody can sue you uh, for that. Uh-huh. In India, it's not it's not easy. You need to have a lot of permissions to do any phone tapping stuff. How does it work down there for you? Yeah, it's the same here. So say for argument's sake, you and your brother-in-law are drug dealers and we arrest one of your couriers and he tells us, he gives us your phone number and he says he's calling his brother-in-law, he's doing this. Now we're going to watch you, we're going to surveil you. We're not just going to go up on your phone based on one of your couriers. Once we get enough information... We go to a district attorney, a prosecutor, and we say, this is what we have. And the prosecutor is going to write up. It's basically like a search warrant. The prosecutor is going to review it. She's going to write up a search warrant. Then we're going to bring it to a judge. The judge is going to look at it, and the judge is going to (laughs) say, now, you know what? I don't think you have enough. Or the judge is going to say, okay, he's going to sign it. Now, that search warrant doesn't give you carte blanche. I, I forget now and things have changed depending on the case, but I think initially you get 30 days, right? So you go through the phone company, you give them the phone number, the phone company sets up the wiretap, right? You're listening to these phone conversations for 30 days and you're documenting, you know, if you're on the phone with your wife asking about groceries, we're not supposed to listen to that. Or if we do, we don't include it in the record. 
Okay. So after 30 days, the judge wants to see a report and says, hey, so what's up with this wiretap? If there's nothing going on for 30 days or 40 days, whatever it is, they're going to discontinue the wiretap. If the wiretap is being fruitful and we have you dealing drugs with your brother-in-law and stuff, then they're going to re-up it and keep keep it going. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, uh, Vic, of all these years of your experience in the NYPD, uh, we know about the good things and how efficient. What is it that you, with your experience, you have found the bad and the ugly part of the police system down there? Just to understand, you know, for the uh, it, for a lot of people everywhere that uh, humans are humans and crimes yeah. will they will always be there. But even on the police side, it's also the human. A lot of all of them are human beings, and even the good part and the ugly part will be there as long as humans are on whichever side they are. That's it. So just to get an understanding of what corrections that can be done there, or is it just like that uh, police corruption and a few other things that we hear on the wrong side of the law is only in some parts of the world. This is just to, for their understanding. Whatever you can share, I will not ask. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think police corruption is a big deal. I think what I mean, they don't ignore it. I mean, the second they find out about something, the amount of resources they throw at it to nip it in the bud, they do. It's not like, all right, we got a bad cop in this precinct. We'll get to it. No, they're on it. I mean, and I mean, during some of my cases, we came across bad cops and the second we reported it, they were all over it. You know what I mean? And then they wanted help from us. What they get wrong is in New York City, they say there's no such thing as a summons quota, but there is. Every NYPD cop in uniform in a precinct has to write parking tickets, has to write moving violations. The city denies it. The police department denies it, but it's 100% true. If you're a cop in a precinct, you could deliver five babies and capture Osama bin Laden when he was around. If you didn't write your parking tickets and moving violations, they were going to give you a bad evaluation, which isn't right. You know, it's like if I pull you over, the way I used to look at it is if I pull you over, you've got your license, you got your registration, your insurance is fine, and you don't give me a hard time, I'm not going to write you a ticket. You know, if you're a working person and you're not bothering anybody, you made a mistake, listen, I speed. I've gone through a red light. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. There's more than enough scumbags out there that I can give. You're going to pull. You're going to come across somebody with no driver's license, no insurance. That's the guy I'm going to give a bunch of tickets to. Um, the city kind of gets addicted to statistics. So when I was a rookie cop, they would just say, okay, take a foot post, go out on, on foot, and come back at the end of the day. Nowadays, what they do is, they load eight rookies and eight new cops in a van with a sergeant and they drive around looking for summonses and they'll catch a guy drinking a beer in front of a building. The van stops. Eight cops get out with the sergeant. The sergeant orders one of the rookies to write a summons. People look out their window and they see eight cops standing around and this guy getting a ticket. It leaves a bad taste in people's mouth. You know, I mean, the optics with that are bad. And everything is perception. Like, why do you need eight cops to give this guy a ticket? So right. they kind of spoon feed the rookies and encourage them to write tickets instead of learning their job, learning how to speak to people, le learning, you know, le learn your job, learn interrogations, le learn about the different scams in the street, learn how the street works, as opposed to just going out and giving tickets. 
absolutely absolutely what about political interference or political pressure on the police there is there something like that or is it yeah. too independent of this or it's like some senator calls you and tells listen this is this is my man you got to be lenient towards towards him or her how does it work with the political uh, system down there and the police well, on many levels, right? So nepotism is huge in the New York City Police Department. So, you know, if, if you've got a family member that's a politician or a big shot or knows a big shot or somebody in your family is above the rank of captain, you're going to work wherever you want very shortly. You know what I mean? You could be a rookie cop with six months on the job. And if you've got a family member with a lot of political influence, you're going to be in the aviation unit flying helicopters or in the harbor patrol on a police boat if that's what you want to do. So, I mean, that's in every job and every I'm sure that goes the same way in India. Um, there's a lot of things. Um, special attention to things where if someone that's very political will call up and want something taken care of, if they want a cop on the corner or something, yeah, they'll move mountains for them. They'll deny it. But, yes, it definitely goes on. See, I worked in the Bronx. I saw a little bit of it, but the Bronx is kind of like more lower, um, more uh, working people, lower middle class income in Manhattan where people have a lot of money. Yes, you definitely see that more. Right, right. Of all these years, what was the strangest thing that you came across or you felt uh, work, working there? Something, something that you didn't, find uh, uh, easy to comprehend. What uh, must have been several things. People talk of ghosts. People talk of seeing ghosts, somebody complaining about ghosts or whatever, something. Was, what, was there anything like that or was it something stranger than that? Oh, I mean, plenty of things. But the, if you want to say something I couldn't comprehend, I mean, on 9-11, um, I was down at Ground Zero walking around by 1.30 in the afternoon. And I remember, you know, me and my friends, my coworkers, walking up to ground zero at 1.30 in the afternoon. And you've got all this ash and dust blowing around in the air. It was like twilight because the sunlight particles couldn't penetrate it. Everything is covered in that dust. And we're standing there looking at this pile of rubble. And like... I had already had like 13 or 14 years in with the New York City Police Department. I had seen many terrible things, but I mean, I felt like a child. Like, you know, when you're a child and you see something and you're like, I just can't comprehend it. Like, what am I looking at? How does this even work? You know what I mean? But as a cop, if you're going to be successful, you got to know how to compartmentalize things and say, okay, this is really bad, but I have a job to do when I have to fight through this mentally. I have to get through this. I can't go to pieces. And, you know, I just fought through it and I was there till five o'clock the next morning till I got sent home. And then I was there for the first couple of days. But, yeah, I would say 9-11 by far was like the most difficult thing to comprehend because it's like, well, is there going to be more of this? Is there going to be another round of attacks? You know, where do I fit in? What are they going to use us for? You know, the health risks being down there. I mean, after the initial shock, it's like, okay, there's all this dust in the air. It's asbestos. It's, it's ground up concrete. It's all these chemicals and materials. Like, is this going to shorten my life expectancy? So there was a lot of things that, you know, dynamics with that. Right. Right. Uh, how did you work your way around 
things as a cop and as an individual who has to take care of your health also uh, with all that dust around. Why I ask this is that a lot of young people who are getting into the police forces, today is a very different world. It's a dangerous world, we can say. And things can happen at any place, at any point in time. And that time it becomes difficult to exactly uh, don't know whether uh, whether you should be taking care of yourself or whether as a police person, you should be just uh, going much, much deeper beyond perhaps even your job entails. So how did you carry around with your job down there, holding your emotions and then as, as uh, protecting yourself and still doing what was assigned to you? How, did, how did, did it work for you? Because there were so many people there with so many stories. It was so difficult to run away from all those things. Yeah, I mean, I always took care of my, I still do to this day. I always exercise. I always try to eat right. I always try to get enough sleep. Um, I think you got to be strong mentally. I mean, most of my coworkers that I was with that day w w were in the same boat with me. They had over 10 years experience. They were fine, as far as I know. Um, there, there are stories about cops that didn't handle it very well and, and needed therapy and, and, and resigned or, you know, as a result of that. I just always thought I, I just exercise and just try to take care of myself. And I try to, you know, it's not like I try to block things out, but I don't let them eat at me either. You know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't upset me to talk about these things, but I won't watch a documentary about it because I was there. You know what I mean? It's like the same as me watching a police show. It's like, well, I kind of know that's not the way things work. So I really don't have any interest in it. But I, I guess it's, you know, it's just preparing yourself. It's um, it's also probably to be successful in law enforcement. There are cops and then there are cops that are successful. To be successful, you, you've got to prepare and you've got to keep with it. And, you know, you just can't just treat it as just like a regular job because it can get very dangerous sometimes. I mean, there are times, there's a couple of times I almost lost my life. There's a story in one of my books. It was a Saturday morning. My partner and I pulled over this guy. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I could tell by the way he was dressed, he was out in a club the night before. And um, I could tell he kept messing around with his waist. And uh, I said, you know what? Why don't you step out of the car? I'm going to show you why I pulled you over. Your taillight is out. And when he got out of the car, I saw him. He had a gun in his waist. So I reached into his waist. I grab his gun. He grabs my hands. And now the two of us are fighting for this gun. And I remember it's it's when your adrenaline kicks in, especially something like that, you say to yourself, oh, shit, I can't lose this fight. If I lose this fight, this guy's going to take this gun. He's not running away. He wants that gun. And he wants that gun because he's going to shoot me. So my partner ran around the side of the car and he goes, you know, he's like, what's up? And I go, shoot him. And he goes, are you sure? I go, shoot him, gun, gun, gun. And my partner just cracked him in the head with his gun. And the guy just kind of went limp and I pulled the gun out of his waist. But I mean, you know, I mean, had that guy gotten that gun out, he probably would have shot me. So if you're going to be a cop and you're going to be doing your job, you always have to expect the worst. And if the best happens, that's great. But you always have to prepare and be ready that things can go bad very quickly. Right. Right, Vic. And, you know, as a cop, when you get into the police department, at that time, most of them are looking for a job or someone to be established in life. And that's the major reason for a lot of people. And they're happy if they are into the 
police department because they might be thinking I'm planning about it. But who is a successful cop? What is the definition for a cop who, who, who wants to live a life in that and feel that he has done what he is supposed to do? So how does he define success? In other fields, the definition of success is different. For a businessman, you look at the business part, you expand it. And then there are, there are, there are your pictures in the newspapers and magazines. And for the politician, it's something you go for the, pres uh, for the seat of the president. But what about a cop who starts at the, at, at the beginning and then retires from them? What, what is the definition of success for them? What was it for you? Someone who does their job, I mean, it, I, and I don't mean that someone that rises to go work in organized crime like myself, there are many successful cops that stay in the same place for 20 years. I'm talking about the guys that come into work every day, they take their job seriously, they treat people with respect, they try to help people. It's the, the cops I used to have the problems with the ones that came into work late, left early, didn't treat people well, were lazy, you know, left the work for someone else to do. They were cowards. You know what I mean? Like they were afraid to get involved in things and, and, and let it go, fall on someone else. I, I just mean someone that, that does their job, treats people with respect and, and is able to leave the job the way they came in. You know what I mean? With their mind and their health. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Big. You have covered this part of the thing. And then after retirement, you have written several books. Seven books. Four on NYPD itself, if I understand correctly. Yes, sir. Now, can you tell us about those four books? Exactly what are those books? And, you know, uh, one of the books' title is Dickheads and Debauchery. Am I right? Yeah. So tell us about all of all of those books, all right, and, and and so that people understand that how you can and how actually you got into writing, how you transitioned from a cop to a author. Okay, so when I retired from the New York City Police Department, I was bored out of my mind, and uh, my friends told me, you know, you got all these funny stories, you know how to tell a story, you should write, you should write a book, and I was very apprehensive about writing a book because I didn't want to get anybody divorced. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble. I didn't want to get anybody embarrassed. So I said, all right, you know what? I'm not going to write a police book. I'm going to write a comedy. So I wrote Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. That's about the ridiculous things people do that shorten their life expectancy. They go to, they go to Spain to run with the bulls. Instead of calling a licensed electrician to do the electrical work, they do it themselves and get electrocuted. So it's just about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life. Then I got into writing the police books and all my books. So my first one is NYPD okay. Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. Um, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos. Uh, NYPD Law and Disorder and Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. So the first three NYPD books, they're all there's no beginning, middle end. There's just chapters with, with stories. It's a humorous – all my books are a humorous behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department, uh, the interesting criminals I arrested, the funny cops I, I, I worked with, the practical jokes we used to play on each other, what goes on inside a, a New York City police station behind the scenes in the locker room, what cops talk about, the funny things guys do. And Grand Theft Auto is basically everything you wanted to know about the stolen – auto industry as far as who steals your car 
where what happens at a chop shop where do the parts go and there's cases in there that i did about a breaking up car theft rings all my books are and my books are available in india and yes. <laughs> they're on amazon and all my books are ten dollars and uh or 2.99 ebook download right right and who are these books for me who who should read these books actually anybody with a sense of humor and anybody that wants to know anybody that likes true crime or wants to know what it's like inside the new york city police department okay okay and there are other books you are you are coming up with yeah and then my last one is called i don't know if this is going to sell in india but it's called confessions of a catholic high school graduate it's got a picture of a kid in a catholic high school uniform getting chased out of a confessional by a priest that really happened to me um I was a little smart-ass kid. My parents insisted that I go to Catholic high school to straighten me out. I wanted no part of it, but I needed it. It worked. Um, it's just that book is about my life as a child growing up in the Bronx and the interesting characters I grew up with. Right. People people are interested in everything and depends on how it has been written. And I'm sure with, with, with your sort of an expertise now, now you are an established author, people would certainly be interested in the books. And... So, so many people uh, like, who would want to connect with you, how do they do that? How do they connect with you? What is the best way to connect with you? Sure. So if anybody has questions or wants me on their podcast or just wants to say hello, you can reach me at, at VicFerrari50 on Instagram and Twitter. Okay. Okay. So my last question to you, Vic, is now you have had a good uh, tenure as a cop, as a detective. Now you are an author. Where do you want to go from here? You know, I, I, I don't need much in life. Like I got into writing these books just to make a little money. And it's like therapy. I'm living vicariously through myself 35 years later. I don't need much in life. I just, you know, I, I want to make a couple of bucks. I don't necessarily want to be famous at all. I really didn't want to do interviews, but I realized early on as an author, you could have the greatest book in the world, but if you don't promote it, if you don't put yourself out there and, and you don't put it in front of people, no one's going to know anything about your books. Like, you know, I'm grateful to you that, you know, my, my books and my story is going to be told in India. I just think that's the greatest thing in the world. You know what I mean? So I'm just flattered that people like yourself find me interesting to talk about my books. Absolutely, absolutely. And and it's it's like it's a pleasure to talk to you. I myself like reading books whenever I can. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to know, and especially for cops, you know, they when they read these books, in indirectly they gain a lot of understanding and which they can also use in their in their lives, in their jobs, and so many other things. And it will obviously, needless to say, they are all very, very interesting reading. So thank you very much. Vic, for joining on to this show. It's a pleasure to have you show, have you on our show and gain all those insights about the understanding of the famous NYPD from Thank an you. NYPD detective. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.